I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Rachel Bovard. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are taping this episode less than 24 hours after the bombshell draft opinion from Justice Alito, majority opinion uh, from Justice Alito, was leaked to Politico. We have no idea what the final decision would be, although this does seem to indicate that it's going in a very particular direction. We do not yet know where the leak came from. By the time this podcast comes out. Breaking news may change. Some of that we do not know. But we're going to start the show with uh, a with two segments on the the leak. Uh, Josh is going to just give us his reaction and we'll go from there. I'm going to talk about the politics of uh, the decision. This is, of course, a midterm year. Then Rachel is going to take us through a, a, another extremely important question, the $33 billion that is now being uh, proposed towards Ukraine. Uh, once again, a lot of money. And then Ben is going to talk about the Department of Homeland Security's new Ministry of Truth. So with that, Josh, uh, take us through this leak. Yeah, so look, I, I will probably come back to this in final thoughts. We're not going to be able to get all out here in, in this segment or even these first two segments. I mean, I assume the listeners, viewers are all caught up, but real quick, what happened, obviously, if you've been living under a rock, is Monday night, Josh Gerstein at Politico, alongside some national security writer who I was not familiar with, leaked what appears to be, and indeed since then has been confirmed by Chief Justice John Roberts to be the actual draft opinion of the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case that, of course, is the abortion case up at the core of this term. We've covered on this podcast many times. And what the court looks set to do, just as Alito's opinion indeed does, this is a draft opinion from February, will overrule Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Now, according to the political leak, there are five votes for that. There were in February. It doesn't seem like those votes have shifted since then. Obviously, you know, pro-lifers know one thing, if nothing else, which, of course, is to not count our chickens before they hatch. So we'll see what happens. I, I personally think that the leak of this nature will likely only stiffen the backbones of Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. But it's it, it's getting really ugly out there. I mean, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer and Speaker, Speaker Pelosi have kind of jointly issued a, a statement that makes no reference to the fact that this was an egregious and literally unprecedented in the history of the institution, an unprecedented leak. Their statement instead focuses entirely on the quote-unquote reproductive freedom that they allege will be at issue. Um, in, in fact, all this will do is return the issue to the states. It's not particularly radical opinion. It's actually very much a, a middle ground approach on the, on the abortion jurisprudential question. It is a forceful opinion. I mean, it, it frankly, as someone who's tending to be more pessimistic about things judiciary, judicial branch related, it genuinely is a more forceful opinion than I thought we, we could ever get out of the Dobbs case. I'm pleasantly surprised, actually, that Justice Thomas gave the opinion to Justice Alito. I, I thought he would either keep it for himself or give it to Justice Barrett. I think a lot of people thought that would be the case for obvious reasons. But Alito tends to be the most fiery conservative up there, and he really does not pull punches in this opinion. Um, I, mean, I mean, he really kind of just takes on Roe and Casey and just kind of systematically eviscerates their arguments. He has this kind of delicious, like, two-page, what lawyers would call a string site, where he just cites repeated cases that kind of resulted in an overruling of precedents that kind of redounded to liberal interests. He really just, he, it's a very good opinion. But look, the obvious question is like, what the hell happened here? And, you know, look, I, it's possible that by the time this podcast is released, we will know, uh, you know, on Tuesday morning, the Chief Justice 
announced that he was kind of putting the marshal of the Supreme Court, which is the first time the marshal of the Supreme Court has been mentioned in public discourse, probably since Louise Mensch was tweeting like six years ago, or whatever. We'll see if the chief justice tries to kind of call in the FBI or any kind of federal prosecutor type people to assist him in this inquiry. But uh, there was literally just no precedent for this, guys. I mean, I I, I cannot emphasize that enough. Nothing like this ever has happened, ever. The Supreme Court is a famously airtight institution. It obviously operates in a totally different format, totally different operating procedure than Congress. It is not a political branch where there was horse trading and there was public lobbying. That's just not how it works because the judiciary obviously is an institution dedicated to the law, not dedicated to policy. It's kind of just civics 101 for you. So something like this has never happened before. I can kind of give you like my personal theory as to the identity of the leaker. Um, In a situation like this, I tend towards Occam's razor. The simplest answer is probably the right answer. So I do think it probably emanates from Justice Sonia Sotomayor's chambers. She's the far, you know, she's the furthest left, the the, the closest thing amounting to a pure Democratic Party mouthpiece partisan hack up there. I I, I don't know whether one of her clerks would have gone rogue. I, I think my Best guess is probably a rogue clerk, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if it comes out that Sotomayor had implicit or explicit authorization on this getting out there. It's possible that Justice Breyer did this as kind of like a YOLO on retiring move, but he is an older institutionalist, so I don't think that's the case. But, uh, you know, look, at this point, um, all eyes on, on the Chief Justice. He is the one who cares about the institutional integrity of the court. And it is now under his watch and his leadership that the biggest blow to the court's institutional legitimacy has happened. Quite ironic. But I'll get off my soapbox where we'll come back to this topic, obviously. So kind of open it up to you guys for your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, like I, I, what you're saying totally resonates with me in terms of the unprecedented nature of this leak. That was my first, you know, even before getting to the draft uh, that was leaked, you know, my horror last night was that, you know, this was an obvious attempt to bully the court or burn down its credibility. Um, because now you're in a situation where when you have a draft leaked and that draft is still being deliberated, any change at all, it, you know, now seems like it was political because it was because of the backlash, because it was politics. And, you know, I really do think that this does tremendous damage to the court, which is the, the last marginally trusted institution in America, <laughs> you know, in the, that that is a problem, um, you know, that I think is going to come out of this. That being said, you know, I do st- setting that issue aside, I do think that the draft opinion was very strong. Um, it, it is tremendous, you know, that the court would even get to a point where it would be gutted, gutting both Roe and Casey. I think we've talked about this on this podcast before that it was my suspicion, you know, the Mississippi case, like Scott Stewart brought a case designed to do exactly this, but my suspicion was that the court, the Roberts court would not allow that to happen, that the Roberts court would, you know, slay Roe, even though Roe's factually irrelevant in many cases, and leave Casey, which is the architecture of the modern abortion uh, infrastructure. But if it's true that they were going in this direction to gut both of them, that's a huge and more conservative should be, should be talking about the strength of the opinion. Um, you know, in addition to contemning the leak, but we cannot let the left define the nature of this debate about substance. We also need to be saying how good it is. Well, my takeaway on this is that I have to believe that this leak came from the left. There's been a concerted campaign to go after the Thomases, including Ginny Thomas, I think as a proxy for Justice Clarence Thomas, really as a proxy for threatening and intimidating, or at least creating the appearance of a threat to anyone who would dare get out of line on the Supreme Court. So I think this is part of sort of a running 
operation. We see, of course, this coordinated or seemingly coordinated rhetoric uh, and potentially policy implications coming now in terms of the Biden administration and congressional Democrats, Democrats in the Senate as well, talking about the need to now codify Roe, sort of an inadvertent admission that this was not law in the first place and that they should have gone about it the honest way by putting it in front of themselves as the people's representatives if they really wanted to try to federalize this policy. Uh, but I view this as the, the death knell of even, again, the appearance of a Supreme Court that is impartial, apolitical, and above the fray. And Justice Roberts, in his defense of the so-called institution, has made, I think, nakedly political decisions in the past, trying to split the baby, trying to mollify the left in many cases. And I think that demonstrated politicization. But look, we've seen the devolution here. We had Borking, then the high-tech lynching 1.0, the Kavanaugh caper, the effort to try to potentially pack the court in discussions and threats by the left to blow up the filibuster. And then we had this second campaign against the Thomases, really part of a many decades long campaign. And so I view this as really the death knell for all to see, to the extent we find out this was the progressive left that was behind this, which by all indications mm -hmm. it would be, I think this perfectly demonstrates again, what time it is, that there is no tactic too low no institution too hollowed. The political war is everywhere. And this ne there needs to be a massive backlash against this. And one of the things that disturbs me, last point briefly, talking about the politicization aspect of this, is Justice Roberts talking about defending the institution and putting the marshal to investigate this. Note that Justice Roberts did not call for an immediate issuance of the ruling. And some will say, well, were they to immediately issue the ruling, that would demonstrate a response to a political event that transpired. But on the other hand, to the extent the heat is termed, turned up on all manner of conservatives around the country, including the Supreme Court justices, and there potentially is violence in the streets, and that's allowed to swell, how is Roberts going to say that he didn't help allow that groundswell to bubble up? So I, I think Mike Davis was out there, among other people, uh, last night when this leak broke, calling for Roberts to immediately issue a ruling. Uh, I wish he had done so. I think he, again, has sort of tried to split the baby here to some extent. So obviously there are two levels to this, the level of the leak and the level of the opinion itself. Um, and just we don't know where this leak came from. That's obviously an important question. The answer may be known by the time this airs uh, because things move so quickly now. But all I'll say is that uh, this is this is something in which the, the genie cannot be put back into the bottle. The toothpaste cannot be put back into the tube. This is a line that was crossed and it was crossed through one of the most important, most consequential decisions that will ever come out of our Supreme Court. And so just that being said, the environment these justices and their clerks work in will never be the same. Um, it, there are things justices can do to mitigate people's fears, but even subconsciously, uh, worries about your family, your children um, are, are going to exist in justices' minds at a higher level than they ever would have before. Um, and, and that's a, a very real difference between yesterday 
and today um, because that's, you know, the, the, we're a republic. We are not a democracy as the left has been crying about all day. Um, and I think when you're conditioned to see us as a democracy, uh, that sort of facile idea of how the country is supposed to work um, as some sort of pure democratic system um, does feel wrong when something like Roe is overturned. It feels unjust, um, but it's only because you've been conditioned to see the country in a, a very different way. So that said, I'm going to start us off on the second topic now, which is similarly on this decision. It is a midterm year, and so I don't think any of us is confused about what's more important here, the lives of the unborn babies that uh, would be protected should Justice Alito's opinion be the decisive one uh, when it is rendered in late June or early July. Or early July. But the reality is um, the elections will very much be uh, affected by this. And the debate actually is how much they will be affected by this and in which direction. David French actually had an unusually uh, accurate point uh, about how he's, he's sort of skeptical of both the right's fears and the left's hope that uh, this will be something that helps Democrats in the midterm elections because most Americans, uh, if you look at polling, do support Roe. They don't support overturning Roe, even if opinions are mixed on the morality of abortion, which they are almost completely evenly split, um, or whether people identify as pro-life or pro-choice. Americans have always been very divided on that question and almost evenly divided on those questions, whatever the wording is. On Roe, it is true, most Americans are opposed to overturning it. Um, but that said, uh, I was at the Supreme Court last night when uh, the protest was growing and building. You can check out our live stream over at The Federalist. I almost actually, accidentally just said live scream, but that would have also been correct because that is literally what we live streamed. Uh, there was a great moment. I shouldn't say a great moment. It was actually like a profoundly depressing moment where one girl and these protests that materialize quickly in DC are always professional activists, the people who work at the nonprofits um, that you know are dotting the landscape of Capitol Hill. And one of the girls says, if you feel like effing screaming, scream. And it was just the most pathetic, uh, you know, shrill noise that came out of this like 10 women. Um, it, was, it was truly awful, but a live scream nonetheless. Um, and so I, I do think uh, already Raphael Warnock has been asked uh, if he believes in any sort of limits or restrictions on abortion. And he just replied, I support a woman's right to choose. Uh, these are not helpful answers to Democrats. Um, and so whether somebody supports Roe is a very different question than whether they support abortion. And to the extent that Democrats are forced to talk about abortion in some of these key races, remember that those polls about whether people oppose Roe are national. Um, and these races are actually on a map that's not great for Democrats. So if you're forced to talk about abortion as a Democrat and you are you know, feeling so comfortable because you're spending time in you know, the left-wing activist circles and watching the, the so-called mainstream media, um, you end up saying things like Raphael Warnock just said. Um, and, and that is not good for you. So I'll, I'll throw this open to the group and just you know, take your guys' temperatures. What do you think, how do you think, um, not the leak because that could change really quickly, but let's say that, this, that the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe, that that happens in June as it likely will, um, and that candidates are now, this isn't even hypothetical, going to be talking about abortion at every campaign stop probably until November in the primaries. How do you guys think this plays politically? 
So it was interesting. I've been on the phone today with a lot of different reporters about this question and just sort of the state of the issue more broadly. And I was asked most recently, well, don't you think the right's going to overstep here? And when I was on the phone, I was actually walking back from a meeting in the Senate right by the Supreme Court. And I said to him, I'm literally in front of the Supreme Court where people on the left are chanting that they should be able to abort their babies up to nine months. Please tell me how you think the right is going to overstep on this question. And I think that that's the real like incredible thing to watch Democrats undertake because it's not like, you know, my, my sense from looking at the national polling on these things, you know, is that even people who are supportive of a woman's right to choose an abortion aren't necessarily the ones who are like happy about it. Right. A lot of them recognize it as a really somber, awful decision that someone has to make, but that's not what you see reflected from the modern democratic party. You see, remember when, you know, when Dobbs was argued, you had this horrible shout your abortion movement on the steps of the Supreme court. You had people taking abortion pills. You know, this is, it's, it's, we've transitioned. (laughs) This isn't the party of safe, legal, and rare anymore. This is the party of like, please let's embrace, you know, what, what I would consider child murder, uh, you know, as a, as a, a, a holy good. So, you know, I am curious how this plays out politically. I tend not to, to actually think it's as galvanizing as, as everyone in DC says it is right now. I think it's a, a base motivator, but I don't, I don't think it's a huge base motivator. I just think there are so many other issues that drive people to the polls um, other than this particular issue, but I could be proven wrong on that. I, that's just my sense from watching it over the years. Yeah, I saw Carl Rove on Fox News earlier today, and Carl Rove's not necessarily a name that comes up all the time in a NatCon conversation, but he had like one, one of his like little like white charts, right? And it was some recent kind of Gallup or Pew poll where they ranked the issues based on like what the voters say are the issues that really galvanize them and get them to the polls. I think abortion was number nine, I mean, pretty far down the list, right? We have skyrocketing inflation right now. People are just trying to make ends meet, okay? I mean, jobs are still, you know, in a situation where we're not fully recovered from the beginning of the pandemic two years ago and so forth. You know, obviously, to to the extent people care about foreign policy, I mean, Russia, Ukraine, Afghanistan, China, there's a lot of kind of bad stuff going around there as well. The border is porous and wide open, the end of Title 42 possibly. There's a lot lot of other issues, I think, that are more front and center. But abortion polling, you know, to... To Emily's point, I mean, historically, it's it's usually pretty close to the margin of error. This is not an issue where one side tends to just totally dominate. Very interestingly enough, actually, the gender gap on the abortion question is much smaller than the gender gap historically on other questions. So, for example, on the question of like gun rights, from the Second Amendment rights, there's usually a massive a fairly large, like 15 to 20 point as high as that gender gap, where men tend to be much more defensive of gun rights, you know, all sorts of may like historical biological reasons, the man is like the protector of the household, whatever, stuff like that, right? But the abortion question, there is a gender gap, because there's obviously a gap in general, where men are more Republican, and women tend to be more Democratic. But the gender gap on the abortion question is narrower than the overall gender gap on the parties, if that possibly makes sense there. Um, the other thing, though, that I think Republicans could potentially be helped this fall if this AOC style talking point to nuke the filibuster to rush through a statutory codification of Roe versus Wade. If we can actually, and we here, I'm softly saying, if Republicans can get people like Cinema, Warnock, and all these kind of swing state Democrats, if they can kind of get them on record as as possibly supporting ending the legislative filibuster for the sake of statutorily codifying Roe versus Wade into law, 
that could potentially portend very well for Republicans. And the only final thing I'll say, and then toss it over to Ben to close out this segment. The final thing is, I think is a matter of just civic efficacy and like the health of our institutions. This would just be such a healthy thing because among many other things, what it would do is it would force people to pay more attention to the state and to the local, which is just a fundamentally healthy way to go about your political lives in general. When everything is so dependent on the cable news talking heads in Washington, D.C., that's not a healthy way for a republic to go on. That's not who we are. We are 50 states with a separate sphere of sovereignty from the federal government. So to the extent that state elections, state legislatures are now becoming way more important as a result of this opinion, if it does hold, that's just a profoundly good thing for the health of our republic. So there's a rare white pill for you, I guess. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, Democrats, of course, under Trump embraced federalism. Now they don't like federalism when they're in power to the federal government. But I think to your point, you know, federalism is one of the things that could cool off an otherwise you know, powder keg sort of national situation, at least if you look at how the blue checks are responding on Twitter today uh, versus where the country is. And of course, the blue checks are not representative of a large cohort of this country. Um, all that said, the conventional wisdom about, well, you know, this is going to drive potentially Democrat turnout. Uh, my suspicion is that the more intense and zealous the reaction is, particularly if, to Rachel's point, the, they're really open and honest about their position, which in many cases is infanticide, uh, as the Virginia governor himself, former Virginia governor himself, uh, openly admitted, essentially. Uh, I, I think that has the opposite effect. I think the more intense and, and zealous and really overzealous, frankly, and unhinged the left's reaction is, the more conservatives will come out. And I fail to see any segment of the Democrat electorate that is really going to be motivated to come out in a midterm election as a consequence of this. I, I wholeheartedly assume that Chuck Schumer et al. will be proposing any number of disastrous policies as well in the run-up to the midterms. Again, this may juice the donor base, but I don't see it having an impact in terms of the votes in a midterm election. And I tend to think net-net, this ends up being neutral overall. If there's nobody else, I think we are going to you, Ben. All right, so uh, happy- Or are we going to Rachel? Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, I think we were going to Rachel, but I can- well, well, whatever. I don't know if there was a logical flow to this. We can obviously. We'll, we'll go to Rachel. Rachel, uh, I have failed egregiously in my job <laughs> as moderator, but uh, I have recovered and I will now uh, delegate to you the responsibility of uh, holding forth. So I, I'm actually going to change conversational left turn uh, from, you know, the breaking news that's going on uh, all day today and talk about something that I actually think is also very important, which is the fact uh, uh, you know, of what Congress is actually doing. And I'm talking specifically about continuing to fund the conflict in Ukraine. So I just wanna back up and talk a little bit about what Congress has already passed uh, and the administration has already sent related to Ukraine. Uh, so in March, obviously the Senate and the, well, the Congress agreed to $14 billion of lethal and non-lethal aid to Ukraine. Um, they've also now approved lending U.S. military equipment to Ukraine. On top of this, the Biden administration has also sent roughly $3 billion of previously appropriated dollars to Ukraine. So there's a lot of money already flowing. Well, the White House has put out an additional request for $33 billion uh, that they are also asking, by the way, be uh, appended to a more... Um, more COVID funding, because that's what we need uh, here in America, $22.5 billion of more COVID funding to be precise. Um, but I think it's worth talking about because I was going through some of the, the president's request yesterday and 
it is transparently obvious to anyone who looks at this request that this is a marginal bill for Ukraine. Maybe 5% of, of the text is about Ukraine. The rest of it looks far more like a State Department, Treasury Department spending bill than it does uh, anything having to do with the crisis in Ukraine. Um, on page 34 and 35, there is a path to citizenship for Afghan refugees, uh, their spouses and children. There is roughly $9 billion uh, to be spread across the world for, uh, among other purposes, combating misinformation because, you know, our disinformation governance board is, is our proudest export here in the United States and under the Biden administration. Um, you've also got a ton of slush funds being created for tr the Treasury Department uh, to be spent far and wide outside of Ukraine. A lot of that goes toward the sort of climate change, green energy agenda. So obviously what we're seeing here uh, is an attempt to use the crisis in Ukraine and the urgency surrounding it and the goodwill everyone has for it to shoehorn in a bunch of you know overtly globalist priorities that will never be unfunded. Once these programs are created and funded, they will go on forever. And these programs go well outside uh, the boundaries of Ukraine. In fact, one of the programs funded through the IMF in the past has funded Russia, Russia, <laughs> Belarus and Venezuela. So to be clear, the White House wants the Congress to pass a bill that could end up funding Russia, and they will say it is all for Ukraine. So it, I raise this because, you know, it's a, an absurd position for the White House to take, but let's take that as a given. But there's been very little pushback, as far as I can tell, from Republicans on Capitol Hill saying, oh, you know, this is not something that we should be doing. Instead, it's been, oh, we need to support Ukraine, so we are just going to look the other way and pass whatever. This is exactly what happened in March. Um, with the $14 billion uh, over, you know, if you recall, the administration's first request was $6.5 billion. Over the course of a week, uh, congressional uh, actors, largely Republicans, you know, almost over, over more than doubled it. Um, so this is kind of the state of play that we're in. So I kind of throw it open. I, you know, I don't know at, at what point do we start to say, two things. One, we should actually be giving these bills scrut the scrutiny they deserve and slow the process down. But two, when are we, you know, the more we continue to send over there, because in addition to what's not for Ukraine, there's a lot in there for Ukraine that includes heavy weaponry, stinger missiles, all this kind of stuff. At what point are we going to be viewed as funding a proxy war uh, and face the consequences for doing so? I think that's also something that, you know, is a legitimate line of inquiry here. Well, yeah, and the administration doesn't have answers to the pertinent questions on this very important question. They don't want to say what the fundamental goal, what the ultimate goal in Ukraine is, which is important because it says what the end game is. And two, they don't want to even come anywhere near a ballpark estimate of what an appropriate amount of money to spend in Ukraine is, because this is something that could be going on for years and years and years um, and, and could eventually pull in, let's say, small numbers of American troops. Let's not forget that the threat of nuclear conflict, um, chemical weapons is always looming in the background, which could immediately involve American troops in, in uh, substantial numbers. Um, and, and so I think without being able to say, I actually asked Marco Rubio this question last week on Federalist Radio Hour. I said, is there a dollar amount um, after which the country has to say, stop spending because we have already spent too much taxpayer money. Um, and, and he was like actually pretty gracious in acknowledging the severity of that question. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a super satisfactory answer. It was a great interview, but that question it wasn't a super satisfactory answer. Um, and I really think that's the question. I'm not saying that there has to be a dollar amount down to the cents, um, but just, you know, when 
it's it's laughed out of Washington to request X amount for a border wall that's way lower than 30, 33 number, um, but it just seems to keep ticking upwards and in, in vast, vast, vast more quantities for Ukraine, and there's no end goal in sight, that sounds like a boon for defense contractors um, and a boon for Washington politicians who like to look tough um, and, you know, they they like the sort of theater of war uh, for political reasons. Uh, and, and let's not forget one of the defense contractors, I forget if it was like Raytheon or, or Lockheed, at the very beginning of the conflict said, it was in leaked audio, like, there's no question this is going to be good for our bottom line. Um, and that's a powerful force in, in Washington. Um, so and that's all, you know, maybe you don't want to put an end date on something uh, when it's uh, you, you, one of the most powerful lobbying arms is seeing it as a cash cow. So I, I think it's extremely disturbing that the administration and even uh, Republicans don't have any information or, or any answers, real answers on these questions. So two things come to mind. So we're recording this on Tuesday, the day after the Supreme Court leak. So tomorrow morning, but it will be out by the time this podcast comes out, I will have published this really nice op-ed at Newsweek from Carlos Roa, who's, I believe, the managing editor of The National Interest. And his op-ed is on this talking point of, um, you know, what this bill has a role to play in, of this Marshall Plan for Ukraine. That's kind of like the new talking point, right, is how do we rebuild Ukraine? How does the West, more broadly speaking, basically meaning kind of Western Europe, the UN, the EU, and the United States, of course, predominantly, Where how do, how do we go about rebuilding it? But as Carlos explains in his op-ed, there are, there, are, there are two massive problems with this. The first is that if you go back to the original Marshall Plan from like 1948, 1951, the state of Western Europe, as far as kind of like the economic infrastructure, not the, not the physical infrastructure because they just had a massive war, but at least the economic infrastructure, the social capital, the human capital, things like that, were well equipped. So they would have gotten back up to speed because the baseline was comparatively relatively well off. The Marshall Plan and, and the direct investment was kind of just the fuel that kind of like helped get the fire more burning. But Ukraine is not like that. Ukraine, you know, as recently as just a few years ago, was in many ways still is one of the most profoundly corrupt and venal countries in the entire world. They do not have kind of first world economic infrastructure, um, you know, financial institutions, capital, things of that nature there. So that the analogy kind of fails on those grounds. The other thing, obviously, is you know who's going to pay? Who's going to pay for this? Obviously, um, I mean, is it is Germany going to pay for this? Well, probably not. I mean, they're putting like a hundred billion euros, whatever the number was, into kind of building up their own military for the first time in years. Hard to believe, uh, like France or the UK. So look, it obviously, as it always does, when we talk about the West and NATO more generally, it ultimately ends up being the U.S. taxpayer. So that really should make us think very hard, obviously, about whether this is so much in the U.S. interest that we should be kind of putting in taxpayer money there to this extent. The, only, the final thing I'll say before tossing it to Ben, Rachel, I think, accurately called out the fact that we could be implicitly funding the Russians when it's purportedly a pro-Ukraine package. The irony, of course, something that's also happening in the world at this time, by the way, is the Iran deal negotiations in Vienna. And, you know, the U.S. and Iran are not directly talking to one another because President Trump withdrew from that deal. So who are we going through? The Russians. The Russians are literally kind of the intermediary. So now we're literally kind of helping the Russians on multiple playing fields while we're purporting to condemn them. It's it's clown world stuff, honestly. Uh, and once again, uh, I'll go back to beating this dead horse of this is diverting us from China. This is benefiting China at the end of the day, which is not even part of the conversation, which of course accrues to its benefit as we continue to get mired down in these massive tens of billions of dollars operations once again, without any sort of clearly articulated goals, 
without clear tactics or strategy to achieve those goals. My initial take sort of on the $33 billion piece of it really as a Trojan horse for a whole slew of other priorities is that once again, the the foreign policy, to the extent there is one of the Biden administration is hyper-political. It's totally politicized. So when they talk about you know, America is back. This is what they mean by America is back. It's tens of billions of dollars in open-ended engagements where it's not clear who's being served, but clearly not the Americans. And the administration is exporting its views and probably lining the pockets of its friends at the end of the day. And really every single aspect of the Ukraine situation they've exploited. Uh, of course, you know, they're, they're, you, they've made the argument that this is why we need to transition to clean energy. So we're going to punish the American people, essentially, by not unleashing our energy in connection with this. And we're also, by the way, going to line the pockets of the Iranians when we don't have enough energy to serve ourselves, which serves another goal of the administration to make Iran the world's leading state sponsor of terror, the strongest horse in the Middle East. And we can go on and on, of course, you know, diverting and being able to blame inflation laughably in America on this conflict and the sanctions they've imposed. So really, at the end of the day, the American people are the ones who are getting hurt the most. Our adversaries are benefiting as a consequence of this. And I fail to see how any kind of Marshall Plan doesn't end up anything but an even further slush fund, which further imperils our financial position and which ultimately puts us in a worse position on a whole array of bases to the extent we ever get around to this this competition that China is obviously fully engaged in against us our conflict or conflicts by other means. Well, um, and so I was just going to yeah, quickly just ahead. jump in and say that the China context is exactly the one in which I asked Senator Rubio about spending in Ukraine, because he raised the point that it is diverting attention. Um, and that's why the Chinese might have an interest in uh, cozying up with Russia in this situation, because it is diverting our attention. Um, and, and so to that effect, I, I think Senator Rubio really understood that. Um, and with that, Ben, it's your turn to take the floor, to seize the floor. Right, well, I'll end on a topic of levity, even though it's it's obviously incredibly disturbing and chilling, which is the advent announced by the Biden administration's Department of Homeland Security of officially a Ministry of Truth uh, doing business under the acronym, at least I'm going to call it this, the DGB, Disinformation Governance Board. And you know, there are a lot of layers to this story. You know, we could talk about the fact that, of course, the person tasked with running this, Nina Jankowitz, is zany, to say the least, uh, a Russiagate collusion monger, of course, uh, this adherent and devotee to combating disinformation who bought hook, line, and sinker and promoted uh, the Hunter Biden laptop as Russian disinformation information operation, someone who has promoted Christopher Steele uh, in speech, obviously the least equipped person to be an arbiter of what is real and what is false, what is political propaganda and what is truth. But that's besides the point. We shouldn't have a ministry of truth in any agency in America, period, full stop. And of course, the way this is being set up is on grounds of combating Russian misinformation going into the midterm elections. So you can imagine the ways that this could be exploited going into midterm election year. That hasn't really been talked about a lot. And then irregular migration, which the administration is claiming is about uh, seeking to counter propaganda being put out by the cartels. Propaganda like, you know, the fact that the southern border is wide open, which has led to massive human trafficking into the U.S. uh, and targeting specifically Latino communities, which at the same time, it just so happens, are the ones that have been turning against the Biden administration uh, in droves on a large percentage basis. But I, I think the broader context here is important, which is that 
and I'm sure Rachel will speak to kind of what is the legislative remedy for this. And there have been some in Congress who have been talking about the fact that this needs to be defunded immediately. My point is you have to understand the broader context of this, that this is just one tentacle of about a million tentacles of what I've been talking about pretty much every single episode of this podcast since the start, which is the war on wrong think in America. And the DHS has played a role in this that goes beyond this disinformation bureau, which is, of course, we saw the, we've seen these national terrorism advisory bulletins coming out of DHS, which the last one in February cited mis, dis, and malinformation as being the chief contributor to a heightened threat environment. And of course, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation on topics that the regime does not like dissent on, namely Chinese coronavirus policies, uh, immigration policies, including letting Afghans in by the tens of thousands, often unvetted to this country, as well as election questions about election integrity. And that goes back to something that occurs in a statement that the Department of Homeland Security put out in connection with the DGB, which is that part of what they're trying to combat with setting up this, this ministry, which they claim will have really no real power uh, that's yet to be seen, and it's an qu open question that ought to be probed, is that they need to combat disinformation because of a, a lack of trust in government, government essentially. This is almost direct language from the Biden administration's national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, which says that a root cause of the heightened domestic terror threat in this country by wrong thinkers, of course, is a distrust in our governmental institutions. And so what are the governmental institutions trying to do to instill trust? They're trying to chill and suppress dissenting speech, anyone who dares challenge their policies on a whole slew of issues. And then, of course, layer in the fact that this comes against the backlash against Elon Musk for daring to put his bid in, presumably winning bid for Twitter, on top of the rhetoric from Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton about the need to combat misinformation and disinformation. And all of this has to be seen as part and parcel of a war on wrong thing. And if Republicans are really serious about pursuing it, about countering it, it can't just be defunding the DGB. It has to be tearing apart the national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, which is really a war on domestic terrorism, on dissenters, root and branch. I have yet to see Republicans in Congress make a forceful statement like that, but nothing less than the stake of whether we are going to have a weaponized, completely weaponized national security intelligence apparatus rests on dismantling this root and branch. So with that, I turn it over for any of your observations on the DGB, the broader context, uh, any, any additional takes. Yeah, it's, you know, I have spent a lot of time on what Congress can do about this board. Um, of course, all of that was immediately overshadowed the minute that this all this kind of tumbled down from the Supreme Court. But I think it's a really, uh, like, significant area to focus because of everything that you just laid out about what this board represents. You're seeing a lot of hot rhetoric from Republicans, but time and time again, it's like they don't actually do anything about it. And I've been pushing on this strategy with them on appropriations, right? At the end of the day, that's these must pass bills that are perfect places to say, no, you cannot fund this. You cannot use money to do this because the executive branch cannot do things without the explicit uh, financial authorization from Congress uh, and also sort of the money that flows from those authorizations. So this is something that I think we now need to come to expect from congressional Republicans. You know, not only do we expect this fight on appropriations, but hey, in the Senate, Republicans can do stuff, even in the minority, right? They have the ability to force votes on this stuff. So I think this is what we need to start seeing because 
uh, the Biden administration has is no holds barred. Uh, that's very clear. Um, I think it's terrifying, by the way, that they chose to put this in the Department of Homeland Security, right? Like a police department, essentially. The term police or speech police is not metaphorical anymore. It's real. Uh, and this is something that should prompt an aggressive response from Capitol Hill. Uh, and I hope, I, I mean, I don't have a lot of hope they'll do it, but they have the tools. Yeah, I mean, look, this is one of those like through the looking glass moments, right? Um, I, I mean, conservatives, Republicans, the four of us probably, we tend to overuse the term Orwellian. This is this is literally out of George Orwell. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the Ministry of Truth is literally right out of 1984, the novel. Uh, it's hard to believe we're here, honestly. Um, I kind of want to know what was happening for the months before this became public, right? I mean, it seemed like they, it seemed like they, that the wheels started turning on this months ago. At a bare minimum, you know, conservatives or Republicans take over the House and Senate this fall. They should immediately kind of use the subpoena power to try and get to the bottom of that. But you know, also as far as like a crass political matter, whether you will introduce legislation on day one to defund the crap out of this and ideally put in prophylactic legislation to forestall the possibility of something like this ever happening again. You know, whether you do that on day one, if you're a congressman or a senator, should be something, you know, that should be like a litmus test of source for the remaining primaries that are still happening this fall. Uh, we got to fight this with with everything we have. I mean, look, the, the obvious problem, as Ben said, is that what they call disinformation is just being vaguely right of center, okay? We're all Nazis. We're all fascists in their eyes. And this obviously, look, I mean, when they call Donald Trump just a fascist pig, Hitler over and over and over again, you know, it wasn't that long ago that they were calling John McCain, George W. Bush, and Mitt Romney the exact same stuff, okay? The point is, if you have an R next to your name, then you are you are suspect of spreading misinformation. All this obviously kind of raises the big questions about big tech, which is a late motif of source on this podcast. We did a whole special recently on Elon Musk. And from my perspective, it only underscores the importance of holding Elon Musk accountable to his professed word as it pertains to what he intends to do when he finally takes over Twitter, hopefully. The the claim that this has no operational authority is utter nonsense because what's going to happen, uh, well, so let me just say that. And, and secondly, Jen Psaki was not able to define what would constitute extremist content when she was asked about that. A hugely important point to make here. The White House is, is going to be combating disinformation and extremism, extremism without any clear definition of what constitutes that. Um, or I, I'm sorry, this, this uh, governance board is going to be doing that. And the White House cannot define how the administration is going to uh, categorize those different questions. That is, again, hugely disturbing. It is a huge part of the equation. They, we know the Biden administration itself has a very flawed definition um, of both of those things. And so it, not having an answer ready to that question and not wanting to answer that question is extremely disturbing. And secondly, what's going to happen is whether or not this board has any operational authority is really beside the point because they're just going to put the imprimatur of the government on whatever their research is, whatever they decide to define as dis disinformation or extremism will now be able to be trotted out by the Biden administration, by candidates running for office as an official determination by the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board. I mean, come on, like that's, that's how this works. Um, and they're also probably not going to be public about all of that. It's going to be funneled into different parts of the government. Um, and again, with the imprimatur and 
internally of the disinformation governance board. Uh, so, you know, is this like actually literally Orwellian um, in the the sort of sense that it's it does have the operational authority? It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. But that's a distinction almost without a difference because their intention um, and what they do repeatedly is use labels like that to then seize their operational authority. Um, and, and so with that, I'll ask Ben if you have any uh, thoughts before we close out this topic. Yeah, well, let me put a capper on this. And I haven't written this up, but it's something that I've been flagging for a while and likely will touch on shortly. Last June, before the administration put out that national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, they put out both an unclassified report on the domestic terror threat, which of course put anti-government extremists so-called out there, and it had language similar to language in a newsletter DHS put out about domestic threats. And I want to read a footnote from one of these newsletters to tell you what the DHS thinks about free speech in this country. This is a footnote from a DHS document. Generating, accessing, and this is in context of the domestic terror threat. Generating, accessing, discussing, or otherwise interacting with conspiracy-related content without engaging in violence or other criminal activity may be protected under the First Amendment, may be protected under the First Amendment, not is protected under the First Amendment, maybe. That's the DHS under which this DGB is operating. And that's all you need to know about how perilous the shape is of liberty in this country today. With that, I'll turn it over to the group for final thoughts. Who wants to kick us off? So, I mean, I'll just start by going back to the topic of the day of the, of the week, which is this just outrageous leak. So before, just before we got started, I, for the first time, saw what appears to have originated on Instagram, where someone with malicious intent is spreading the list of the five conservative lean justices and their clerks. I, I mean, I don't have words for that, for, for, for like the level of evil uh, that is in that decision to like dox clerks of that nature and clearly trying to wish them harm. So, you, you know, just please like pray, honestly, for like the security of, of, of the conservative leaning Supreme Court clerks, obviously of the justices themselves. I mean, may they have like the, the spine, the steel to kind of see this thing through despite this just unprecedented assault on the court's integrity, this unprecedented in attempt at a grotesque influence operation. Um, it, it's just, it, it's really, 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 really ugly stuff. And it, it, to Ben's point that he said earlier as well, it just underscores the imperative to understand what time it is. It underscores, I think, the ridiculousness of like the true ardent classical liberal extremists on our own side who will just kind of defend kind of like, you know, a neutral playing field and, and Lockean liberalism, like to the nth degree. Look at what they are doing, guys. I mean, it's crazy that you even need this latest example, by the way. Obviously, what happened to Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing, what happened to Brett Kavanaugh, there's just so many data points now. But when abortion, honestly, is the issue, it's all on the table. Amul Thapar, the Sixth Circuit judge, had an opinion from his other late last September, early October, where he famously said that the Supreme Court kind of has two sets of rules. There were the rules for all other cases, then there were the rules for abortion. And you've yet again seen an incredibly, incredibly dire example of that, obviously, with this unprecedented campaign. So just most important right now, pray for the safety and well-being, I think, of the justices and the clerks. 
Well, and I'll just jump in and say, um, by the way, I beat Rachel to the punch. I would like that to be noted. I saw her on mute, uh, but it feels like a game show. I'll jump in and say to this point again, how important it is that we can never change the environment that Supreme Court justices and clerks are operating in anymore. That is something that fundamentally changed from yesterday to today when we're taping this. Um, You can never put that genie back in the bottle. It is always going to be a concern now as they are working on cases of enormous consequence um, that this will be a possibility um, that the clerks were doxxed is terrifying uh, to all the points that that Josh said, not just because, you know, we, we know some of them and, and want them to be safe, but because I want all of Justice Sotomayor's clerks to be safe. If ever extremists on another side said, I want these people to be deliberating um, in the way that they're supposed to, which is in a, in a branch of government that is as divorced as it possibly can be from the sort of political winds. Um, and, and this just took a huge step to demolishing that. And I hope that Justice Roberts' response um, in the coming days is is so swift and severe that anybody who comes along in the future and tries to pull a similar stunt um, is is terrified out of doing it because it's it's sort of technologically impossible and you know, their sort of life would be ruined uh, career-wise, whatever, for this mistake. Um, but I think it's not just about, you know, obviously the lives of the unborn babies are the most important thing in this case. But my final thought is essentially that also the Supreme Court has sort of been fundamentally transformed literally overnight as the expression goes. But in this case, it's it's not an expression. It is actually very real. Um, and, and I would hope that uh, the folks uh, down the street over at the Supreme Court are thinking about how they can restore the the confidence that clerks and justices have while they're deliberating on these important questions because so many of our institutions have been utterly wrecked by this sort of post-truth, post-liberal uh, world um, that we should do everything we can to protect this particular one. Yeah, I was just gonna, you know, I, I mean, I agree with all everything that's been said here. And I and I think Emily's point is one to emphasize in the sense that what the left will do to maintain access to abortion, it, it, it is just, unco- I mean, it, it is the line that, that defines their politics. If you look at what happened to Justice Thomas, what happened to Justice Kavanaugh, what happened with this leak, like everything is about access to the ability to terminate a child's life in the womb. And, and that is a, just a sick place to be as a society, but that's where we are. Uh, but, you know, I was going to add, like, you know, I really do think it's important, you know, as egregious as the consequences and fall of this leak are going to be the opinion that was still put together, the voluminously researched opinion written by Justice Alito that took a, you know, legal reasoning that was pristine in addition to, I think the correct take on the outcome cannot be overstated. Like whatever we have to go through, if we get that opinion, babies' lives will be saved, millions of them. And that is just tremendous. And I I don't want us to lose sight of that. And I don't want the right to lose sight of that when we talk about, you know, how bad the, the process has been in this. If we get and I hope we get that opinion verbatim personally, <laughs> because it is just uh, the fact that we are here to see this today, I think is just monumental and remarkable. That really should have been the end of this episode because I'm going to go <laughs> negative. <laughs> um, but 
So, uh, but, but I will say that the negative I'm about to explain is in part just shows you uh, sort of the, I, I, I don't, I don't, I want to say the uh, just utter ridiculousness of the other side doesn't even really do it justice. Uh, the vile nature of what we're seeing, the evil nature, frankly, it's probably the, the most accurate way to describe it. Uh, my, my take on this is in addition to how unprecedented this is and you know the assault on the institution of the Supreme Court that we see here, one of a number of them in recent decades, my kind of major takeaway is that this is about mob rule over any semblance of a rule of law in America. And that's probably maybe the most disturbing thing to me about it. This is clearly in my view, and we'll see if it's proven out based upon who the leaker is, and then we can back into it. But the way that I see it, this was about naked intimidation. This was about threats. And the fact that barricades went up at the Supreme Court within minutes of this thing leaking is just an utterly devastating commentary on our society. And one of the most depressing and demoralizing things about it. And of course, to the, to the point that you've all made, because they want to block millions of babies from being born and they want to terminate millions of babies. Uh, so that is sick and evil. But the mob rule aspect of this is depressing to me. And we've been operating in sort of a mob gets a veto over law and justice for a long time, for too long in this country. We saw it in the Chauvin case where there was the threat to burn down the city and riots everywhere to the extent the ruling went the wrong way, so-called. We saw it in 2020 on a, before election night in Washington, D.C., and probably other cities as well, where they were boarding up shop windows. In America, you don't destroy things because your side loses in a political or legal case. Yet time and time again, we see it. And it's almost universally, of course, on the left. But the one thing they'll point to is January 6th. And the reason that it's so frustrating for some of us who take an unpopular position, which is that regardless of however wrong people may have acted on January 6th, they're entitled to the same rights as everyone else in this country, and they shouldn't be treated as sub-citizens in this country. Look at how January 6th is treated as equivalent to 9-11 and how silent the right is on those languishing in pretrial detention right now. But of course, you go back to the 1619 riots and it's completely kosher or what transpired at Lafayette Square, where the federal government executes a settlement with those people. And I think that the hypocrisy is the point. The double standard is the point. It's meant to show that we can kind of beat you anytime, anywhere. The one time some very small fraction of a percentage of people who might be aligned with you gets out of line, we're going to say that not only is there moral equivalence between our two sides, but that your side is terroristic and we're on the side of angels. And that is the thing that is most demoralizing to me looking at this from a 30,000 foot perspective. But that said, I guess the silver lining is they have to act this way because they are looking at real justice here. And this would be real justice to the extent this ruling does come down. And I pray it does come down. And, and briefly, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, so just real quick, because I, I think it is probably good to try to end on a more positive note, although I, I agree with everything Ben just said. Ra Rachel's point is actually really important. And I, I want to be the first to say, or among the first to say, that if this decision comes down with this current five justice majority, credit to the federal society, credit to everyone involved over the years who have selected these justices. That doesn't cure all the structural problems. <laughs> the jurisprudential debate is still going to be there, but massive, massive, massive credit to the conservative legal movement if this decision holds. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was actually thinking the same thing earlier today. Well, on behalf of Ben, Rachel, and Josh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.